basics, okay? So I think you guys have caught the hint. Um, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 9 through 13. If you've been with us for the last little bit, you'll know we've been going through the Lord's Prayer. Bigger picture is we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew could be called like a, a how-to for following Jesus, a training manual for following Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 6, we're, at the, we're in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, perhaps his most famous teaching. And this prayer is how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And so let me read it to you. This is what Jesus says. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would help us to hear from you through this prayer that your son Jesus teaches us. Give us ears to hear, a heart to respond with courage, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. This morning, I've adapted some material by a guy named Daryl Johnson. He's written a book on the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. It's called 57 Words That Changed the World. And if you're interested, it's a great book that I'd recommend. Now, Jesus' prayer really is short. It's really short. It is only 57 words long. And it's also very simple. It's just six petitions. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't complicate it. Don't make it a show. Don't make it anything more than what it needs to be. It's not complicated. It's just these six petitions that you can bring to your Father. And the first three petitions are about God. Your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. All about who God is on earth as it is in heaven. And then the last three petitions are all about us. Father, give us our daily bread. Father, forgive us as we forgive those who have hurt us. Father, deliver us from evil. It's very short. It's really simple. But it is staggering in what we're praying at the same time. When you pray, as Jesus teaches us in this prayer, it becomes a powerhouse for living the life that he calls you to, the life that Jesus has redeemed you for. Living this prayer draws us into life, the life of the kingdom that the Sermon on the Mount is all about. If the Sermon on the Mount is how we live in the kingdom, this prayer actually helps us live into that reality, that invitation that for many of us, as we've heard Jesus' teaching, we've been like, man, that just I don't know how I do that. I don't know how I reject contempt and pursue reconciliation. I don't know how I walk alongside someone that I would call my enemy. I don't know how to do that. And this prayer is what Jesus situates right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is how we live into this life. This morning, we're going to focus on the second petition, the second ask that Jesus gives us. Your kingdom come. And I think it's this petition that is the most staggering of all of them when we discover what we're asking God to do. 
Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now the question becomes, what does Jesus mean when he says, your kingdom come? Well, here's what he's not talking about. Most of us hear kingdom, and it's a language that we are largely separate from. We don't have that in our everyday vocabulary. Maybe we think of Queen Elizabeth, King Charles, who are symbols, but they don't have the authority or political power to affect change. Maybe we think more of like fantasy in the medieval kingdoms, kingdoms of Lord of the Rings or other fantasy novels. Maybe you think of that, and you just don't connect to it very much. Jesus isn't talking about that. He's also not talking about human visions of kingdoms. Neither forms of government that we see in our country, like the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party or any other variant on either end of the spectrum, can ever embody the kingdom that Jesus teaches us to pray for. None of these governments will ever be able to govern or deliver on their vision of the good life. That's not to say we avoid politics or we avoid engaging in voting or anything like that. Paul even teaches us in, in Romans when he writes to the church in Rome to pray for the emperor, a guy who was persecuting Christians at the time. Paul says pray for him. Jesus isn't teaching us to withdraw. He is teaching us that none of the kingdoms or political systems of our day are capable of completely delivering what we deeply long for. All of these, though, these ideas have something in common. They all touch on this idea of ruling. And when Jesus says, your kingdom come, he is talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That, they mean the same thing. When you see kingdom of heaven in the gospel of Matthew, it is because pious Jews wanted to honor God's name so much, they would use a word like heaven instead of God, but they were referring to the same thing. They wanted to honor God's name. But it speaks here of ruling, God ruling. And so before we can make sense of this prayer, we need to take a step back and make sense of what that term, the kingdom of God, meant for a Jew in the first century. In the first century, the kingdom of God wasn't thought of as primarily a political or territorial thing the way you and I think about it. We think about a, kin a kingdom like a realm. But it was something much bigger. In the first century, Jews believed that history was moving forward. That history had a purpose, a telos. That history was linear, and it doesn't mean history is st a straight line, but there was a meaningful end that history was moving towards. And the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God was the end of history. The end of history was the kingdom of God. That's the end that, that God's people were looking forward to. And that day would be this great reversal of everything that was wrong in God's created order. When the kingdom of God arrived, God would powerfully and effectively intervene in our world and bring his plan to fulfillment. God would dynamically rule as king on earth. God would overcome evil, and it would be removed forever. God would permanently deal with our sin, and it would be dealt with 
and death would cease to exist. God would judge evildoers and, and the evil one and all who had rejected him, and everything that had marred and destroyed God's good creation would be undone and no more. So the kingdom of heaven was looked at as this future thing that God's people looked forward to, where they would be vindicated, free, they would be restored, but all of God's creation would be. And God would be king. He would rule over it. So contrary to some mistaken beliefs about God and his plans for earth, God doesn't hate the material world and, and, and intend to give up on it. Rather, he loves his creation, the universe, earth, humans, and he intends to restore it. He will bring justice and healing, wholeness, peace, and joy. And so this great reversal is also a great restoration. So, in light of that, we can say our Father in heaven, come and rule so that all that has gone wrong and been done to your good creation would be reversed. Israel, God's people, in the first century, they weren't free. They lived in the land but they weren't free. They were actually living under the oppressive grip of the Roman Empire. God was not worshipped by the nations, and Israel itself struggled to faithfully follow God. The kingdom of God was what faithful people of God were looking forward to. It was this hope for a future good that they anticipated, a future when God would be all in all. Now, this view and direction of history was rooted in God's character as he revealed himself in his words and his actions to Israel. And it's incredibly different than other worldviews. And we have to acknowledge that. That not all people, not all cultures, not all religions see history in a linear way. That it's moving in a specific direction. I remember when I was painting, I had a friend, he, he didn't um, identify as a follower of Jesus or anything like that, but he believed that history was moving in a progressive and positive way. And I was like, why though? Why do you believe that? Why do you think that that's going to happen? Just because over the past, say, 50, 100 years, we've seen technological advancements. What, what makes you think that, that we're always going to keep going up? And in many ways, you could argue that the last three years have completely thrown that on its head as lots of humanity's brokenness and even some of the developments we've had in terms of technology have been used for evil you could argue that we're not progressing in just one linear uh, way that is all positive some views some people have views of the world that history is random and there is no purpose the beginning was random and the end will be random and the events that you and i deem as good and bad are just things that we personally define and give meaning to. They're just personal. There isn't anything that is objective beyond ourselves. Others believe that history is not random, but it's cyclical. That we live in a cycle of lives and we are doomed to repeat the cycle of life and suffering and death until we can find escape from it. And some worldviews seek to offer a solution to that. Jesus doesn't believe that history is random, nor does he believe that history is just cyclical. There is an end, and that end is the kingdom of God. And here's why this matters and is good news for you and I. We may feel like history is nasty, brutish, and short. And much of what our news gives us and what we read about covers all that is nasty, brutish, and short. We hear of distrust of authority, 
of broken trust by authority figures, violence, injustice, and corruption all around our city and in our world. These things are not random, and we're not caught in a cycle, though. The pain, the sadness, and disappointment that we experience and witness are real. We don't diminish that, and the gospel does not diminish that at all. But we put our trust in a God who will return and rule and make all things right, that he will resolve it, that the pain is not lessened then, but we know that the arc of history is moving towards his kingdom. And nothing that you and I, or anyone else for that matter, can do will slow or hinder God from bringing his kingdom. And in fact, that's actually what's so amazing about this prayer when you think about what he's asking us and inviting us to do. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Jesus isn't asking us, teaching us to ask God for strength to bring our Father's kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, when you pray, ask the Father, Father, give me strength so I can bring your kingdom here on earth. That's not what he's showing us. We participate in that, but that's not what Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus is teaching us something else. He is asking, he's teaching us to ask God the Father to do something only he can do. We cannot bring the kingdom of God on earth. And now that you understand what the kingdom of God is about, that makes a lot of sense. How could we possibly bring about this great reversal of all that has marred God's creation? We can participate in that process, but we are not the ones who bring it. We partner with him. We can't bring history to its end. Only he can do that. And yet Jesus is suggesting that by teaching us to pray this, that we can influence the coming of God's kingdom by praying your kingdom come. That we get to partner with him through prayer. In other words, the kind of prayer God loves to answer is your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The thing that's close to the Father's heart, that stirs him, that moves him, is seeing his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. So when Jesus says, when you pray, pray then like this, your kingdom come. Jesus is teaching us to pray for God's final coming. That's one point. He's teaching us to pray for a complete end to this history and for the beginning of a new history of God's, of the world of God. But he's also... Jesus, when he says to pray like this, your kingdom come, he is teaching us to pray for God to displace the evil one's kingdom with his kingdom. That's what we're praying for. And third, when Jesus teaches us to pray your kingdom come, he's teaching us to ask that the reign of everyone with with even an ounce of influence from the queen or king to influencer to prime minister or drug dealer, from nation to neighbor, from a mass movement to an individual, would be made relative to the reign of God. Make God, make your sovereignty, may everyone else's sovereignty be made relative to your sovereignty. Jesus gives us this privilege of of inviting God's glorious future. Jesus has given us this privilege. And so what we're praying is, our Father in heaven, hasten the day when you come and reverse all that has been broken by the evil one. Make everyone's sovereignty be made relative to your sovereignty. Let heaven invade earth. Bring the future into the present. Now, can you see why this petition is so staggering? We're asking for a revolution. We're asking for a complete reversal 
I think if we grasp this, we should feel a weight to this. There's real implications for our lives, for our world when we pray this. We like to say your kingdom come in songs because it usually sounds really nice. But what you are saying is, God, you are sovereign over all. So come and rule in fullness on earth like you already do in heaven. In me, in my world, bring the end of history. And maybe you hear this and it's already started to grasp in your mind that like there's some concerns that are bubbling up as you think about these implications. Because one of them might just be like, I'm kind of afraid of missing out. Missing out on the experiences of life that I just haven't yet had. Some of you might be like, man, I just want to get married. I want to experience life married. Some of you are like, I want to finish school. I've been working on it for so long, and I want to be able to have that experience. I, I want to see my family grow. I want to have grandkids. Don't come yet, Lord, you might be saying. Give me some time. My kids are not getting on that fast enough. Maybe you're like, I want to travel. I want to see the world. There's places that I've longed to go and visit. Or maybe there's a job that you have like, longed for. There are things that we want to experience before the end. And in this sense, some of this fear may be motivated by selfishness. But other times, these concerns may be coming from a place of settling. We actually think these things are so good that they're actually better than the kingdom of God and all that it will bring. It makes me think of that uh, illustration that C.S. Lewis mentions in The Weight of Glory of this child who is making mud castles in the slums when he is invited to take this vacation on a beach and make sandcastles. And he says, no, I don't want to do that because he can't even imagine what that would be like. I'd rather just keep playing in the mud. The kingdom of God is far greater than these experiences. Though these experiences are great, there's nothing bad in and of themselves. Some of us, though, are not motivated necessarily by our own desires, but something more missional. We fear what the kingdom of God will mean for the unchurched. There are people we love that we've been praying for, interceding for in our family, in our workplaces, that we genuinely care for. And we fear that as we pray this, we're worried about those implications of what it might be when the kingdom of God comes in fullness. We fear that Jesus' coming means judgment for the unchurched. And there's a fear there that makes it difficult to pray that then when we realize what we're asking God for. Because how are we going to ask for something that we don't genuinely want? And Jesus is saying, this is the type of prayer my Father loves to answer. So there's a tension here we have to acknowledge within ourselves about what it is that we define as precious, as most treasured, as what we care about. And if you read following Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer, he's going to talk about what you treasure most, about what you seek after first and foremost. And he says, seek after the kingdom of God. It's for this reason, acknowledging this tension, that this one scholar is named Dale Bruner. He says, part of praying this should also include praying, Lord, help us want your kingdom to come. 
because we just acknowledge that maybe there's a gap between where we are and what Jesus teaches us. And he's aware of that, so we don't hide that. Lord, help us want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the, the good news is that this kingdom that God wants to bring has already shown up, at least in part, through Jesus. Jesus himself brings the kingdom. This is what he gets at when he says in Matthew 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Mark is more detailed in Jesus' announcement where he says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, based on what we know, Jesus here is talking about something future-oriented, but it's now come near. The kingdom of God has come near, Jesus says. Jesus' arrival was not the end. The day of the Lord had not yet arrived. But in him, through his arrival, the long-awaited promise has begun. And in proclaiming that, he's announcing that the kingdom of God has come in him. And when we look at the Gospels, we see that he doesn't just announce this with his words, but he begins to show this. You'll see... Now, during, in the Gospels, you'll see what Jesus does, and you can see this in a number of different ways. Let me give you some examples. During the time of Jesus, there was this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were just all other nations. And there was this hostility between the two groups. Gentiles were referred to as dogs, and Samaritans were considered half-breeds. Even Gentile converts were unable to come into the innermost court of Israel. They, had to, they were only able to come to worship God in the court of the Gentiles, which was farther out. Jesus subverted the system when he comes. He lived faithfully as a Jew, but he interacted with Samaritans and Gentiles. And the best picture we can see of how Jesus flips things is in Luke chapter 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he makes a Samaritan the most righteous one who perfectly lives out God's law over and above that of a scribe, of a priest, or a Pharisee. And then at the end of the story, he says, go and be like the Samaritan. In the first century, there was a clear division and hierarchy between genders. But again, Jesus overcomes this division. And in Luke 10, again, following this parable, you see that Mary sits at Jesus' feet and listens to Jesus' teaching. And this was a posture of a male disciple in the first century, but Mary is taking that posture. And it's for this reason, Mary's sister, who's been working in the kitchen, is upset. And she's upset with Mary, and she wants Jesus to correct her. And she tells Jesus to send her back. And what does Jesus do? He says, no. Mary's chosen the better thing. And when you read through the Gospels over and over and over again, Jesus is undermining these established norms of division and hierarchy between genders. Again, in the first century, there was class divides everywhere. In the Roman Empire, there was a strong sense of class between the Romans and the non-Romans, free people and slaves, ruling classes and the conquered people. Jewish society itself had classes based on occupation and health even. Priests were held in high regard, but the physically deformed lived on the outskirts of the city. Tax collectors were ostracized in the Jewish society as political traitors because they had partnered with the Roman oppressors. So the Roman oppressors 
accepted these tax collectors, but Jewish society rejected them. Now, among Jesus' closest disciples, one was Levi, a tax collector. And to all of his countrymen, Levi was a traitor. He betrayed his people. He was working with the enemy and getting rich off of it too. Simon, the zealot, was another disciple of Jesus. And we don't know for sure the reason for his name, but it's very possible that he was a zealot in the political sense. Zealots were bent on leading an armed insurrection against the Roman Empire. And they believed that the Messiah would come and bring the kingdom violently. Jesus says to both Levi and to Simon the Zealot, follow me. And now he makes these two guys whose worlds are completely apart come together. Jesus does this. The thing, the person that brings them together is Jesus. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near, it's not just this nice announcement. There's real world ramifications for the way in which people live. Whether they be related to gender, to class, to politics, anything like that. All of these old ways are being undone. And God's new order is being brought into the world. Real healing on a physical, social, and spiritual level is made possible through him. And Jesus wants us to respond. He wants us to respond. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, right after this teaching we get of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 8 and 10 do something beautifully. This is where you see Matthew being very creative in the way that he shows us who Jesus is. Because Matthew will illustrate in chapters 8 through 10 of his Gospel nine different signs that highlight Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom of God. And it leads to healing and restoration. And so he organizes them in trios. These trios where he cleanses a leper, then Jesus heals a a centurion servant, then he heals a mother, then he follows this by saying, follow me. Then Jesus calms stormy seas, and he sets free demonized men, and he restores a paralyzed man. And he says, follow me. Following that, he says, he raises a, a, a girl back to life, he heals two old men, and then he heals a mute man. Now, why does Matthew do this? Why am I even spending time highlighting this? Because you cannot separate the kingdom of God from discipleship to Jesus, from being a follower, an apprentice, a student of Jesus to the kingdom of God. You can't separate them. Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom of God. And entrance into this kingdom that Jesus is now teaching us to pray for requires acknowledging his rule and surrender to him. The kingdom stakes a claim that you are his And you should serve the king. But if Jesus is telling us the kingdom has come near and that the kingdom of God is something that is supposed to come in the future, then how do we square that with his announcement 2,000 years ago the kingdom has come near and we're still here? History hasn't ended. We're still living life. How do we make sense of that? It makes us ask this question, has the kingdom come or is the kingdom coming? When Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near, does he mean the kingdom is here, so get in? Or does he mean the kingdom is about to get here, so get ready? It's different. And there's a lot of scholarly debate about this. But the general consensus when you look at all of the New Testament is that the kingdom of God can be characterized in this already, not yet, tension. 
that the kingdom of God has already come, but not in its fullness yet. The kingdom of God has come, but it's not fully consummated. The kingdom of God is both a present manifestation and a future consummation. That's how one guy put it. You could say that the kingdom has come partially, but one day will be completed. But that wouldn't completely convey what Scripture seems to teach us. And it's not that that's wrong. It's just maybe that it's missing something about the good news that Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus' proclamation is that the kingdom has come near. And so it's probably more helpful to think of the kingdom being already here, that it's currently veiled. It's in a hidden form. It's not yet visible and manifest. Here's how Daryl Johnson will put it. The good news is that the already not yet is a matter of veiled versus visible. The already not yet is a matter of hidden versus manifest. The really good news is that in Jesus, the new order is already among us, but in a veiled, hidden form. It is not yet among us in a visible, manifest form. And so, the kingdom is already here in Jesus. It's already come, but it's veiled. Just as the kingdom is in its hidden form, so Jesus is present in our world. He's present among us in this room, but in a hidden and veiled form. And yet Jesus will talk in the Gospels about people having eyes to see and ears to hear. That though what God is doing in our world may be veiled, there are some who do recognize his presence and work among us. There were some who recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and worshipped him and followed him. But not everybody recognizes he's come near. In the Gospels, you see this example of rejection and acceptance. It's both. It's not just people flat out rejecting the gospel all the time. Some accept it. There are others who don't. The same applies in our lives. There's people we share the gospel with who reject it and those who accept it. We don't have control over that. But when we pray this, we're saying, Our Father in heaven, pull back the veil. Make your kingdom visible and manifest in our world. And that's what this word, if you've heard, uh, apocalypse actually means. We hear apocalypse and we think about probably like a movie about the end of the world, right? And everything's going bad, like horribly, horribly wrong. Massive tidal waves or crazy earthquakes or some zombie movie, and that's what the apocalypse is, right? Those are the things we think about in pop culture when it comes to that word. However, the word apocalypse actually means unveiling. Unveiling. It means breaking through from hiddenness. And so at the end of the age, when God brings his kingdom in full, God will unveil what is already true in the heavens. That Jesus is king over all of creation. Over all his creatures, great and small. And when Jesus breaks through from hiddenness, we will see his kingly rule, his power, his glory and majesty will be made visible to all. And for this reason... Gerald Johnson says that praying the kingdom of God means something like living God even before the day of the Lord, reveal what is invisible, manifest what is hidden. We're not praying then for the slow, gradual process of unveiling God's kingdom. We're actually asking for God's final, decisive, and universal unveiling, ushering in his new kingdom, new creation, which leads to all of us and all of creation crying out, he is worthy. He is the king. 
And so, our Father in heaven, unveil your majesty. Break through from the hiddenness to reveal the glory, splendor, sovereignty, and reign of Jesus, the crucified and risen King. Usher in your new creation. End evil, the, the evil, the sin, and injustice. Like you already are doing and have done in Jesus and in heaven. Now, how do we live into this prayer? Because a lot of what we've done is tried to make sense of this word that many of us have maybe not known what it meant or have misunderstood. But how do we live into this prayer, this petition? How can it begin to dig its roots into our lives? Well, I think one of the most faithful things you can do is just pray, Father in heaven, your kingdom come. It doesn't have to be complicated. Your kingdom come in humbleness and in faith. In transparency that it's harder in some moments than it is in others. That it's easy when things, you see and acknowledge the evil in our world to pray this. It's much harder when we see the things that we may have to surrender or that we have elevated as most important over and above his kingdom. This prayer forces us then to align our hearts with the heart of the Father. And we don't want to just know this prayer, we want to live in it to experience the life of prayer Jesus had for us. So there's three questions that I think we can ask ourselves. And we don't need to share the answers with the person next to us. You can if you want. But I think first and foremost, our audience in these questions should be God. And so the first question it acknowledges that this petition is an issue of priority. It confronts us with this question, am I consumed with the prospect of the kingdom being unveiled and the world's subsequent surrender before King Jesus. When I read that, I was like, man, (laughs) that confronts you. Is that my priority? The way I live, the way I spend my time, do I care? Do I care? Is that what I care about? The second question we can ask ourselves is acknowledging that this petition is also an issue of steadfastness, of consistency, faithfulness in the same direction. And it confronts us in this way. With all of the changing details of my life, am I continuously, continually renewing my submission to Jesus' kingship? What this does is it forces us to acknowledge that we don't just make a decision at one point in our life to follow Jesus, that there's a daily decision we make to, do, to follow him. And things in our lives change. Our, our, our state of desperation sometimes changes. Sometimes situations in our life cause us to cry out, and in desperation, we say, Lord, I surrender. Take the wheel. I don't even want, I can't. And then there are other moments where things feel like they've calmed down, and we feel like we have control again, and we're like, I don't know if I want to surrender. But this petition actually forces us to acknowledge, actually, in all details of my life, I want you to be king. Is that true of me? We're asking God to help us as we seek to yield our all to Jesus. The third question acknowledges this petition is also an issue of transformation that we are asking for God's transforming power to reshape our inner and outer lives, forming us into the people God always intended for us to be. 
And so we're confronted with this question. Am I experiencing the expected transformation from a fleshly sinner to a shining saint required of all of King Jesus' subjects? When you put your trust in Jesus, your identity is no longer sinner. You do sin, but that's not what defines you anymore. And sometimes, because we want to be faithful to the teachings of Scripture that we sin, we start to place our identity in our old self, who we were before Jesus. But now in Christ, we have a new identity. And part of following Jesus is learning to live into the new identity that he gives us. Holy, without blemish, justified, made righteous. We're given gifts to serve others in the church, outside of the church, to bless others. We are children of God. Those are the things that this this new identity we are given And so the question becomes, am I stepping into that new identity he gives me as one of Jesus' disciples? Now, when you hear this, you can go like one of two ways. One way is you hear this and you actually just feel like shame. You're like, oh my gosh, I am not consumed with that. I'm consumed with Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. I'm not consumed with this. Maybe you're like, I'm consumed with my job, or I'm consumed with my children, or I'm consumed with this one thing I don't have in my life that really bothers me right now. I'm not consumed with this kingdom coming. You hear this and you think, man, the details of my life have changed so much. And... I haven't renewed my submission to him. I actually lost sight of it because things have gone really well and it's been really easy. I've been coasting. And you feel shame there. Or maybe you're this last one and you hear it and you're like, oh my, I don't know how much I've changed. I feel like I haven't changed at all. I still feel like I'm struggling with the same things I was struggling with when I first came to Jesus. When you become a follower of Jesus, you step into a kingdom of light. And one of the things about light is sometimes it does expose things we don't love. You can think of light like giving attention to. And yesterday, there was a bunch of us that were working outside, doing gardening work and all these things. And one of the things I realized is, like, weeds grow way too fast. They're terrible. And they're so annoying. And some of the weeds had grown so tall, they had flowered. These things that were unwelcome guests in our church's parking lot had flowered up to, like, my waist. They hadn't just gone, like, tall. They had been spreading. Their roots were going everywhere. Now, I will walk out of the parking lot almost every every time I leave here, right? And I could see, oh, there's weeds growing over there. We should probably take care of that. And then, you know, you just move on. But when you come up this close to it and you see it, you realize how much it's grown, how much it's gotten out of hand, and you have to address it. When you ask yourself these questions, you begin to open up these areas. You begin to come closer to and acknowledge, where am I at? It's not about shame. It's about bringing light there, stepping into the light and acknowledging where you are with Jesus. It's not about him shaming you so that you cower and hide because you were a child of God, because Christ went to the cross and paid the price for our sins, we get to come before God as children 
And Hebrews says we can come into his throne room with boldness. And so this invitation to look at these questions and acknowledge where we are is not meant to cause us to cower in shame, but to say, Holy Spirit, shine your light on any area of my life where I have actually not realized I've been resistant to your good and perfect will. You redeemed me. You've brought me into the kingdom of light. I want to be a child of light. And so what, however you answer these, there's actually an invitation to be conformed into Jesus' image through it. That if you haven't lived faithfully, you can still repent and turn. As Jesus says, turn back to me and follow me. Live in my kingdom in light of what I am doing and who I am.